Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing City of Angels. doing. I am tired. If there ooh, if there was a day in this week of ours where you woke up with heavy lids like me, if you felt like a dragon bag of vanilla pudding, if you felt like pudding, then I'm right there with you. <laughs> Last week, generally good week. This week, also generally good week, but so tired. Everyone, I feel, just needs more sleep. But the more sleep you get, the more tired you wind up feeling. It's really weird, Benny, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, Benny's nodding. Benny! We we were told when we showed up to the studio that the podcast that will not be mentioned, it will not be named explicitly because, yeah, it's the tennis podcast. It's it's these fucking tennis podcast guys, yet again. I, I don't bring up every awkward interaction I have with these two men. I, if I brought up all of them, it would just overwhelm the show. It would be a huge distraction. But we were told when we showed up on time to record this here, this very episode, that the tennis podcast was running long by like half an hour. So we decided to get a little snack. We got some banh mi sandwiches at a little place uh, very nearby, not next door, but very nearby, just hop, skip, and a jump away. And I was very grateful to have that opportunity to sit down with you, Benny, because, again, we've only been working with each other for a few weeks now. We're going to be working with each other through, I think, the beginning of November. Yes, we've, yes, yes, yes. It, I know that. I don't know why I'm, <laughs> I'm having an old fogey moment. And that's my point. I'm, a full, I'm about a full 10 years older than Benny, and I was very interested to get to know him. So I I asked if this would be okay, and he said it would be fine. And so I'm just going to relay a couple of quick facts regarding Benny, specifically Benny's childhood, his high school years. I was very interested because 25, right? Yes, Benny's 25, and you know that's a very that's completely different generation. And I just wanted to learn more. So here are three things I learned about Benny. Uh, number one, I think I'll start with this. So Benny, at one point, this was early high school, correct? He went through a couple of phases, and that's really what I hit upon. So the first phase that Benny told me about was he had a hat phase. Freshman year? Yes. Okay, great. And he wore a different hat every day of the week, every, every day of the school week. And, you know, there was a Monday hat and a Tuesday hat, Wednesday hat, Thursday hat, Friday hat. You get it. And then on the weekend, you would take a break, right? Yes, that was your no hat time. 
It's very that that to me is very charming and funny because that is very high school to me. This idea that you want to you know you want to assert yourself, you want to create your own style, but at the same time, it's hilarious in hindsight because you clearly wanted structure, you wanted rules. Benny is nodding slowly. There's vigor. It's vigorous, but it's very slow and emphatic. So that was the first thing that I learned about Benny uh, in regards to his high school career. The second is that Benny was in exactly one play, correct? Yes, one play in high school. That was your junior year. Yes, I'm getting everything right. I'm a very good listener, Benny. You'll you'll find that about me. And that play was Blythe Spirit. <laughs> and as if I'm, if I'm telling this story correctly, you puked before the show, during the show, and after the show. That was premiere night, right? And how many performances did you do? <laughs> Benny's holding up two fingers. That's, that's uh, again, very high school. So how long did you... Hold up the amount of weeks that you rehearsed Blythe Spirit. Nine. That... <laughs> Nine weeks for two performances. That, that sounds about right. Public high school, sure. And then the third is that during the like final like moments of your senior year, okay, so you, you had done the hat phase. That was a little bit of an experiment. You did the theater dipping. You dipped into the theater. You dipped back out. And then in like the final month, you just decided... <laughs> But it was a calendar-based thing, right? Like it started, yes, okay, May, he's mouthing May. Thank you for helping me. So from May 1st to the end of May, you just did goth. It wasn't even a phase. You just gave yourself this little like capsule of time, this portion of time, and you went straight goth. But goth in the sense that, because I have a frame of reference for what goth would look like and, you know, sound like in terms of, you know, what kind of music you may have been listening to. But essentially, if I may interpret your story, it sounds like you really just put on a Halloween costume every day for a month. And <laughs> and nobody, you, I remember you saying, like, nobody was really thrown by that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So no one was really surprised or, you know, thrown off. You still, you know, you, the, what's nice is that you didn't abandon anything else. You sort of abandoned your aesthetic but you still talk to all of the same people. Benny, you sound very... You're so charming to me. This high school Benny is very charming to me because he sounds very grounded, but at the same time ready to go, like ready to experiment. Some things scare him, you know, some things delight and interest and pique his curiosity, but he's sort of willing to go down different paths, try them out. And, you know, some kids, they get really fucking crazy. You know, I didn't hear any stories about any wild drinking or smoking of the marijuana. So it sounds like overall you were a very good kid. And were you at, when graduation came around, were you in the, okay, no. (laughs) Good. I think you understood that that was probably not something you wanted (laughs) fully documented in a very big event like that. Okay, great. Benny, we've talked enough about you, more than enough about you. I silence you, Benny. Let's get the show facts. Show me the show facts regarding City of Angels. City of Angels was the 1990 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on December 11th, 1989 at the Virginia Theater and ran for 879 performances. Hot damn. The book was by Larry Gill. The music was by Cy Coleman of Sweet Charity, Seesaw, On the 20th Century, and Barnum fame. The lyrics were by David Zippel. The director was Michael Blakemore. The musical director was Gordon Lowry Harrell. There isn't an official choreographer credit. Uh, According to the Internet Broadway database, uh, we have Walter Painter credited as musical numbers staged by. We also have an assistant choreographer listed. That would be Sandy Ravetta. The scenic design was by Robin Wagner. The lighting design was by Paul Gallo. The sound design was by Peter Fitzgerald and 
Bernard Fox, and the costume design was by Florence Klotz. The original Broadway cast included Greg Edelman, James Naughton, Rene Abogenet, I, I, it sounds like I really pulled that off, but I have a feeling I did not. Randy Graff, D. Hottie, Kay McClelland, James Cahill, Carolee Carmelo, Peter Davis, Sean Elliott, Tom Gallantich, Eleanor Glockner, James Hindman, Gary Kahn, Amy Jane London, Alvin Lum, Jackie Maltby, Keith Perry, Jackie Presty, Herschel Sparber, Sparber. Oh, Herschel. We're going to try that again. Herschel Sparber, Evan Thompson, Doug Tompos, Scott Wera, Raymond Zifo, and finally Rachel York. What a long list. I copied and pasted all of those names. Probably could have stopped after in a little while, but we got everybody. Everybody listed on the old IBDB got a little credit there. So there you go. Tony Nods. Let's talk about the awards that the City of Angels production was nominated for. It was nominated for Best Actor in a Musical, Greg Edelman. Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Renee Abajanet. Best Costume Design, Florence Klotz. Best Lighting Design, Paul Gallo. And Best Direction of a Musical, Michael Blakemore. It won Best Musical, of course. Best Book of a Musical, Larry Gilbert. Best Original Score, Cy Coleman and David Zippel. Best Actor in a Musical, James Naughton. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Randy Graff. And Best Scenic Design, Robin Wagner. So, in total, 11 nominations and 6 awards. The plot. City of Angels divides its time between two narratives. The first, which depicts the hustle and bustle of the Hollywood studio system in the 1940s, is presented as reality. The second, a grim noir tale about a detective tackling his latest case is entirely fictional, having been created by a novelist-turned-screenwriter who lives in the real world of Hollywood. The show relies on costuming and lighting to communicate which narrative is currently being presented on stage. Those who reside within the detective story wear black and white and are starkly lit, while members of the Hollywood cast sport colorful outfits and are lit with more warmth. You get it, we've all seen The Wizard of Oz, not the first Oz comparison I'll make today, though, BTW. Let's start by providing a brief synopsis of the detective story, which is anchored by a square-jawed, fast-talking galoot known as Stone. When Stone is approached by a voluptuous socialite named Alora with a missing persons case, both he and his secretary, Uli, are suspicious. Dames like Alora usually spell trouble, but money is tight, and Stone can't turn down a pretty face, much to Uli's dismay, so he takes the case and begins searching for Alora's missing stepdaughter, Mallory. I could get super granular about the details, the ins and outs of this case, but to be honest, it's not worth it. Here's what you absolutely need to know. Our detective is eventually framed for the murder of Alora's husband's New Age doctor. This delights Stone's old partner from the police force, Munez. But why? Why would Stone's partner want him sent up the river? Well, when he was a cop in his younger days, Stone angrily confronted a big-shot producer who was sleeping with the love of his life, a singer named Bobby. The producer was killed in the scuffle, but Stone managed to avoid prison time, a fact that has always infuriated 
period in Munoz. In his opinion, Stone got away with murder because he's white, and it's because of this Munoz is determined to see Stone get the chair. Some additional info regarding Bobby. She used to have dreams of becoming a singer and left Stone to be with the big shot producer who was killed, but in the intervening years has become a prostitute. Oh, the horror of it all. All right, that's all we need to cover. As far as the detective story is concerned, let's move out of this fictional realm and into reality, shall we? The writer penning our pulpy thriller is a fellow named Stein, and boy, howdy is Stein a piece of work. Stein is upset because the man he is working for, Buddy Fiddler, is always forcing him to make changes to his screenplay, his script. For example, Buddy believes Munez should be motivated by jealousy rather than racial outrage. And get this, Buddy is constantly telling Stein to cut out foul language and trim the length of scenes. Oh, the very idea. Who does Buddy think he is? The producer and director of the film Stein is writing? Oh, that's right. Buddy is the producer and director of the film Stein is writing, and he's the one signing Stein's paychecks. But still, the very gall, I do say. You'd think Stein would pack up and quit this crummy job if he resents it so much, especially since his wife, Gabby, is constantly telling him to leave Hollywood and get back to writing novels. Instead, Stein ignores Gabby and cheats on her with Donna, who acts as Buddy's secretary. This isn't the first time Stein has cheated on his wife, by the way. He even tells her before leaving New York for Hollywood that he'll never cheat on her again, only to immediately begin an affair with Donna the second he lands on the West Coast. Cool guy, right? Oh boy. Stone eventually leaps from the pages of Stein's screenplay to confront and accost his creator for conceding to Buddy's demands. He notably does not tell Stein to straighten up and fly right when it comes to Gabby, his wife, because all Stone presumably cares about is looking as cool as possible. Stein gets into a snit and dismisses Stone out of hand, going so far as to write a scene where the detective is throttled in order to prove who's boss. I suppose now would be a good time to point out how there is a lot of craft staging on display in City of Angels. Almost everyone in the cast is playing at least two characters, which requires them to jump in and out of various costumes while barreling down the track of this show. And when Stein is at his typewriter pecking out the detective story, it gets even more complicated. In those moments, the actors are routinely required to walk and even speak backwards in order to convey that Stein is going back to revise his work. It's all quite clever, too clever by half, one might say, but I'll explore this further in a bit. Everything comes to a head when Stein shows up on the first day of shooting to discover Buddy has placed his own name above that of Stein's when it comes to the on-screen writing credit. What's worse, Donna has gone behind Stein's back and rewritten whole passages of the script to better suit Buddy's sensibilities. Ah, traitors! Traitors! All of them! Stone shows up in the real world a 
second time is sitting at Stein's typewriter to give his creator supernatural levels of strength and confidence. You heard that right. Stein beats the shit out of everyone out of everyone who stands in his way. He throws the mangled screenplay into the air and everyone celebrates a completely unearned, totally bizarre happy ending. Gabby even shows up to embrace Stein, their marriage having been magically reconciled. Doesn't make a lick of sense, absolutely not, but the show is over and there is no tougher question, so please leave and take your candy wrappers on the way out. Goodbye. General observations regarding this plot. The ending reads like a rushed, I I suppose I should say, I was able to find a copy of the complete book, the script, at the library downtown. So I have read the script in full. I should have, maybe I should have uh, saved that for later during my research sources section. Oh, who knows? But uh, okay, we'll just tell you now. I spoiled it. I read the script, okay? The ending reads like a rushed, foolish kiss-off, the kind of resolution you'd expect from a bleary-eyed college student who is equally terrified and annoyed by the prospect of having to stick the landing. I hate it when shows devolve into chaos when they've run out of ideas, and Angels commits that sin without hesitation. Character arcs? Huh? Emotional payoffs? What are those? Let's get weird! Let's not get weird. Let's pretend I care about the characters and want to see proper resolutions for them. None of the women interest me in the show, because they fall into one of two categories. Category number one, ooh, men. Category number two, oh, men. They're either obsessing over men who have done them wrong or frothing at the mouth at the prospect of jumping into bed with them, and it's just super disappointing. It's it's all very broad. Bobby sort of stands alone, but only because she's a tragic figure we're expected to pity, the gal whose prospects have been destroyed by men. To summarize, you can be an obstacle, a bombshell, or a prostitute, literal or figurative, if you happen to be in Donna's shoes. Such choices for women. Women, yes, let's have all of their dialogue, all of their perspectives filtered through the lens of, yes, but what do men think of me and what do I think about men, 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 men? The subject on my mind is always that of the men. How delightful for a performer. Stein is awful. He's a bad character. He's a petulant brat, an adulterer, an egotist, and a liar who experiences exactly zero growth or consequences. He's also aggressively quippy in conversation, which I cannot stand. It's one thing for Stone to toss out pithy replies. He's he's a boilerplate detective, steeped in cliche, but when Stein, an actual adult person, does it, you want to smack the shit out of him. Here are a few examples. Donna says to Stein, you always wake up feeling guilty? And Stein says to Donna, I like to get an early start. Donna says, you're too tough on yourself. Stein says, there are some who are tougher. Donna says, you wake up with her no matter who you go to sleep with, don't you? And Stein says, all she asks is that I be the best possible me. I keep settling for being a first draft. Donna says, I don't see any problems with that. Stein says, don't make it easy. I need the pain. All of these exchanges are from the same scene. Enough already. Stein should be everything Stone is not. Meek, unassuming, easily pushed around. If that were the case, it would actually mean something when he's inspired by Stone to take control of his life. But the Stein we get is a brooding, manipulative jerk. Why should I care if a guy like that gets what he wants? Is this a comedy? 
I know it's sold as a comedy, but the script contains very few obvious jokes. And the ones that we get, the ones that exist and are quite obvious, are often painfully juvenile. One of Stein's Stones, I should say, one of Stone's early zingers reads as follows. L.A., truth to tell, is not much different than a pretty girl with the clap. Okay. Later, an aspiring actress is shown to have been hiding under Buddy's desk throughout an entire scene, a gag that implies she was going down on him. At the very least, we're supposed to think it's funny how she's the kind of gal you would hide to avoid embarrassment. That's hilarious, right? And again, these are like two of maybe six moments where the show is going out of its way to be comedic. Beyond those moments, the book struck me as oddly self-serious, especially when it came to the detective stuff. So I have no clue what audiences are expected to get out of this when all is said and done. For the purposes of this week's episode, I sat down with the 1990 original Broadway cast album, and I was also reading the book by Larry Gilbert at the same time. So I would read a little bit of the script, I would read, I would read this, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, I would read the script until it came to a song, and then I would play the song on my iPod Nano. That's what I use to listen to music. You got me. I've also got a flip phone. I'm an absolute maniac. So that's how I sort of moved through the show initially. Now, when sitting with the bookend album, I quickly began to suspect City of Angels was reminding me of another work entirely. And for a while, I couldn't put my finger on it. But then it hit me. It was The Singing Detective, a BBC miniseries that aired three years before City of Angels premiered on Broadway. The list of their similarities is a long one if you're familiar with The Singing Detective. Both pieces are musicals for a start and involved maladjusted authors struggling to finish their latest detective stories. Both split their time between real and fictional worlds, which are consistently set in the 1940s. The detective's issues reflect those of his creator, Check. Actors who play characters in the real world show up as different characters in the writer's fictional world, all of the Wizard of Oz, Check. And in both pieces, the line that divides those two worlds becomes blurred allowing fictional and non-fictional characters the chance to interact and learn from one another, check, check, and check. I bring this up because Larry Gelbert's official introduction to the published City of Angels book is pretty self-congratulatory. He seems to think the creative team came up with a totally original, mind-blowing idea when the singing detective is sitting right there. For all I know, the whole thing is a coincidence, but it stinks, if you ask me. Stinks like fish in an old shoebox. All grievances aside, I appreciated the amount of supplementary material included in the published version of the book. We get 25 production photos, costume sketches, a full breakdown of every award won by the original production, even Al Hirschfeld characters of the cast. Most musical librettos are printed with no ceremony whatsoever, so this was a nice change of pace. I just think Gelbert could have stood to get his nose out of his own ass for a second. I also listened to the 1993 original London cast album, The London album reinforced what we already know about cast recordings and their relationship to the listener. A show's first cast recording is usually like, no dialogue, no context, confusing. The second, third, and fourth cast recordings are more like, dialogue, yes, context, offering a hand to those who maybe didn't see the show on Broadway. No, fuck that. Catch it on Broadway or die. Well, perhaps we could shut your mouth. No noobs allowed. Don't tread on me. 
I also watched the 1990 Tony Awards performance, which is a combination of What You Don't Know About Women and You're Nothing Without Me. And it's fine. It's totally fine. They totally spoil the final image of the show, which involves Stein, Stone, and Gabby being lifted by an enormous camera crane. I've been complaining a lot, so I will say this is a moment of theatricality I genuinely enjoyed. Stein tops it off by throwing the pages of his script into the air, causing them to rain down on the cast as they release their final soaring notes. It's grand and classy, which I found refreshing. Now let's talk about the score. I have some general observations regarding the score. General observation number one, Cy Coleman's music is fantastic. Bright, frequently thrilling, overflowing with jazzy energy. Many, many people praised City of Angels as a whole when it premiered, but my theory is that they were simply excited to hear Coleman's work performed on Broadway again. This is not to say he had been away from Broadway for long. No, that far from it. In April of 89, he had another new musical premiere on The Great White Way, that being a show called Welcome to the Club. It earned two Tony nominations, but only ran for 12 performances, and the New York Times dismissed Coleman's score as, quote, inconsistent. <laughs> so I think dedicated theatergoers were ready to champion Coleman when Angels had its turn at bat. Compared to Coleman's music, David Zibble's lyrics have a about as much impact as a Werther's original at dinner time. These lyrics leave you wanting more, I say, much more. They're not funny enough to excuse their lack of character insight, and after a while, it felt like I was looking at monotonous expanses of wallpaper. Which do you like more? Do you like the Werther's original metaphor, or the one about the wallpaper? The wallpaper. He burned the commune? He burned the deed to the commune? Huh? Be honest, I can take notes. Let me know about the metaphor. If I had the opportunity to listen to the Coleman score minus Zipple's lyrics, if I had the opportunity, I would take it in a heartbeat, ba bum ba bum as I'm certain it would be a more satisfying experience. Now, general observation number two. A group known as the Angel City Four routinely appear throughout the show to act as a sort of Greek chorus, commenting on Stone's exploits via tight, radio-friendly 1940s harmonies. You only go around once, and then they tuck you in with a spade. You're either under the gun, or unafraid. Any fool with a stand-in, can't sit back and survive. You better do your own stunts, or spend a lifetime buried alive. You've only got one shot, then you drop. but the material is obviously beyond challenging, intended for seasoned performers who are not intimidated by its intricacy. Me? Myself? I? I would puke from stress if I had to learn this material, and if I were the musical director, forget about it. If you can't pull off the Angel City 4, there is no reason to mount a production of City of Angels. No one wants to hear a mediocre Angel City 4, so please, I beg you, the world is bad enough right now. Right now, let's talk about. Well, let's start with. Uh, let's start at the beginning, shall we? The top of the score. Double talk. We're making movies out of books. They say that Buddy wrote the book. 
I can't depend on him to give me some lip But you can trust a guy who shoots from the hip Out here where nothing's how it looks It's hard to disregard a candid stand-up guy Who skips the double talk and lets you know exactly what he's thinking about you And I can beat the odds and meet his demands Though I'm a stranger in the strangest of lands This mad adventure I've begun Is unlike anything I know It's gonna be a lot of fun Here we are. It's the first song we're talking about. It's Double Talk, which begins as a duet for Stone and Delora and eventually becomes a solo for Stein. The clip you heard is from that second half. That song that is Stein, I should say, singing in that clip you heard. Greg Edelman plays Stein on the OBC album, and he is holding no punches in these early moments. His performance is open-throated, wall-shaking in a word. It's loud. Now, to compare, let's compare that to Martin Smith. Martin Smith is comparatively more relaxed on the London album, swapping out bombast for a lighter sound. Benny, can we get that? For making movies out of books They say that Buddy wrote the book I can't depend on him to give me some lip But you can trust a guy that shoots from the hip Out here where nothing's how it looks It's hard to disregard a candid stand-up guy Who skips a double talk and let you know exactly what he's thinking about you And I can beat the odds and meet his demands Though I'm a stranger in the strangest of lands This mad adventure I've begun Is unlike anything I know It's gonna be a lot of work much, Benny. I don't think one performance is technically better than the other, but if pressed, I would say I'm a sucker for sheer volume sometimes every now and then. Sometimes you want your musical theater to be big and loud, you know? I realize these observations they're not exactly mind-blowing, but I did find it interesting how everyone on the London album, not just Martin Smith, everyone is relying more on their head voice than a showy belt. The English performers don't take that bait. They don't want to show off. That's my instinct, at least, which must say something about an inherent difference in performance style. Yankees are unbridled, always showing off. Brits, reserved, dignified, always in control. Now, maybe I'm speaking too generally, but you can say, really, Yankees, hot dogs, Brits, crumpets. You think what I don't know will not hurt me, but you don't know. You're an incurable player you show a lack of discretion you No know jack about heartache You're out of sync with your feelings you only wink at commitment You're running low on emotion What you don't know about women You're dropping emotion Next to what you don't know about me You were indeed of a little enlightening on ladies and love But you can't see What you don't know about women is frightening And you don't know nothing about me 
What You Don't Know About Women would work so well in a cabaret act if the women involved played it as if they were a gay couple in the middle of an argument. Wouldn't that be delightful and fun? Oh, am I right or am I right? Everyone's seen a Take Me or Leave Me in a cabaret act, and we've seen that a thousand times. That's old hat. If we're going to watch lesbians fight, let's try something different. Let's dip into City of Angels, shall we? Think about it, call me, I'll set it all up. Now, What You Don't Know About Women is charming, but winds up producing more questions than it is willing to answer. If Gabby, for example, is so dissatisfied with her husband, Stein, why is she still married to him? And as for Uli, well, ooh, ooh, Uli. Uli doesn't exist. So I, I, I couldn't care less about anyone who operates within the detective story, but the same goes for her. Why work for Stone if he's a fool? Oh, because I love the big galoot. That's why. Ah, yes, of course. Excuse me while I rub my temples. Don't cling to the words to which you gave birth. Remember how many a picture is worth. The odds are a thousand to one, so get used to it's time. The book may be yours, baby. Trust me, the movie is mine. You learn from von Sternberg, you grow from von Stroheim, and so I'm the heir to their skill. This town has more nuts than Brazil. Let's face it, I've been through the mill. Alright, so you heard a little bit of the the song known as The Buddy System. Fantastic. Uh, This is the part of the episode where I point out how the character of Buddy Fiddler is... uh, It's an anti-Semitic character. That's my instinct. I'm going with my gut here. In this oh-so-biting satire of Hollywood, he... Buddy is supposed to be the creatively and morally bankrupt influencer... A wheeler, a dealer, he's the guy with his hands clutched firmly around the purse strings. He can make you and he can break you. Stereotypical in and of itself, right? I believe he's even walking around in like jodhpurs and he's carrying a riding crop. So, I mean, it's a big stereotype to begin with. But then you hear the, uh, how do I put this, distinct character voice on both cast albums, and suddenly your hackles go up. Buddy is all mensch this and have him over for a bagel that, but he's never explicitly stated as being Jewish. So what we're doing is we're, we're practicing in code, and that is dangerous fucking shit. That's a habit that I am not willing to indulge. We all know what you're doing, guys. It's not subtle coding, okay? The bagel, the mensch, yeah, this is ridiculous. If we can manage to put all of that garbage aside, which is a, a it's a heavy task, <laughs> a lot of garbage you got to move to the side. I would say that I am definitely Team Buddy when it comes to his conflicts with Stein. Buddy is the boss, and if Buddy wants changes made, guess what, Stein? He's paying you. Ugh, this locks chomping asshat is stifling my artistic voice. He shouldn't be able to put his name above mine in the credits, but he can do whatever he wants. Stein, shut up already, you big dum dum.
may be the least fulfilling female role in a show packed to the brim with them, but at least Kay McClelland is tackling the characters solo with everything she's got here. With Every Breath I Take takes a while to pick up steam, but once you cross over into the latter half of the song, it's a schmoozy, melodramatic good time. The musical theater canon is sort of obsessed with the image of a lone woman singing torch songs into an old-timey microphone, isn't it? I feel like I've encountered this image constantly ever since we started the podcast, and we're only 30-plus episodes into our very long run. Am I going crazy, Benny? Have I gone mad? Ooh, perhaps I've gone mad. You're about to take that big siesta, stone but don't request a padre. Rest assured that I'll say mass. Try a final meal of tacos and a plate of beans mañana. Other they are gonna give you gas. They will strap you in a chair. And for once you'll be polite. You'll say, Governor, pardon me, but he should sure to disagree. Cause the case I've made is tight. It's the people versus stone. And my money's on the state. Oh, dreams do not come true You will get what you are due All you have to do is wait Time to fiesta On the day you die I'll eat high on the hog Santa Maria I will go to town On the day you're put down like a dog Munoz is a problem, and I realize that my pronunciation of Munoz, Munoz, I I apologize. I'm sure that I am really not giving that the accuracy that it deserves. So I apologize for having done that in the past. I I even looked it up online. I I wanted to get that right, but I don't really think that I'm doing that correctly. So I'm going to keep going with Munoz. Hopefully, if anyone knows, (laughs) just yell at me. You can yell at me. You can bop me on the head. Please, I'm asking for it. Give me the business. So Munoz, as a character is, he's a problem. Consider how every lead in the original production of Angels was given to a white actor. Okay, you got that in mind? Great. Now consider how Munez is written to be played exclusively by an actor of color. The character is Colombian. Then consider how the one song written for Munez is designed to underscore his POC status from note one. He's singing about tacos and beans, throwing out the occasional bit of perfunctory Spanish, crying out, Santa Maria! It's embarrassing, and I don't see how even in 1989 anyone thought this would be worthy of an actor's time. Oh, I get to play a murderous Colombian who hates white people and sings about tacos. Where the fuck do I sign up? If you think this isn't a big deal, swap out Colombian for any other race and see if you're still comfortable. Hey, it's me, the villainous black character who raps. It's very important that everybody understand that I am the black character and I'm going to rap for you. I'm a villain. Still fine with it? I, I, I thought not. This is about as subtle. This song, All You Have to Do Is Wait, is about as subtle as the ay 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 song from the Chipmunk Adventure. Let's examine them side by side, shall we? Can we get a little bit more, Benny, of the All, all You Have to Do Is Wait song? This was going to be a lousy day. All right, now let's get I, 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 I from the Chipmunk Adventure. I, 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 I,
they're basically the same. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. If your song is about as broad as a fucking chipmunk song, you got another problem. You have problems, show. Deal with them. You're nothing without me. Without me, you just disappear. Right into thin air. And no one would care or notice you ever were here. A puppet and upstart. A loser who's destined to fall. I'm everything you always wanted to be. Let's deal with You're Nothing Without Me is definitely, without a doubt, hands down my favorite Angel song by a mile. I adore the piano line that bounces and vibrates throughout the entire thing, keeping us chugging along as Stone and Stein bark at each other. Now, I don't care about their conflict, since this is the first time we have seen them interact, but divorced from context, it's a totally delightful experience. My only quibble with the song is its tendency to rhyme a word with itself, rather than, you know, finding a different word that actually rhymes. Here are some examples from the song. Is your mouth lonely with one foot in there? Stone, your brain only holds thoughts I put in there. You are so thick, you eat, breathe, sleep fiction. I'm your meal ticket, knee deep in cheap fiction. Gumshoe is rhymed with gumshoe. Out without. Record with record. The writing draws attention to itself in a way that distracts from what we should be focusing on, which is story and character, the voices of these characters, you know who would agree with me on this? Steven Sondheim. That's right. I'm trotting that card out. Stevie and me, we agree. You see? Ha ha ha. A matter of fact, if you want an ill-fated love affair, you can always count on me. Though I've made a pact to carry out research before I Give a warranty. One Joe who swore he's single got me sort of cropped the beast. I woke up only slightly shocked that I defrocked a priest. Or else I attract the guys who are longing to do my hair. You can always count on me. You can always count on me does not work in the way of enriching or advancing Donna's character, but I would certainly recommend it as audition material. I mean, come on. There is no way thousands of women haven't already used a cut of this song, you can always count on me, when auditioning for Guys and Dolls. It's practically a wholesale ripoff of Adelaide's Lament. Both songs reference snotty hotel clerks for crying out loud. I only compared City of Angels to The Wizard of Oz twice, but I can promise you this, I can assure you, the Guys and Dolls comparisons are going to keep on coming throughout this episode. They're going to come fast, and you need to be ready for them. Am I... Here's a question. Am I supposed to feel sorry for Donna? Because I don't. Aw, shucks. I have such rotten luck. I always wind up in bed with married guys. Wow, what a tragic fate, Donna. If only you could make, you know, 
better choices, different choices, grow as a person. But no, clearly you're destined for heartache. It's a cycle from which there is no escape. The worst part of this song, oh my god. I, I shove this so far to the back of my mind, but when I get to my notes, it comes right to the forefront, and I, I have to go through this all over again. It's so exhausting. The worst part of this song is the gay joke. There's a gay joke in this, if you can believe it, which the joke made me want to barf. It boils down to Donna saying, I don't know what's worse, the guys who break my heart or the ones who just want to do my hair. Shut up. You know, those gay guys, (laughs) those closeted gay men who pretend to fall in love with you and it's all just a big ruse. All they want to do is play with your hair because, you know, gay men, they love women's hair because they're basically women. They're not real men. Gender constructs, gender lines. (laughs) No lack of alibis. Your neck for the spectacular is still intact. I like the tone of it. It rings sincere and pretty near succeeds. It's just the narrative is like a sieve and cloudy as a cataract. There's not a trace of honesty, so face the fact. It needs work. Gabby depresses me, and I need her to leave Stein immediately. She does. She leaves Stein at the end of this song. It needs work, but then she's magically conjured up at the end of the show, so it's all complete. It's a complete write-off. Stein routinely cheats on Gabby, right? We know this, and he lies to her face. We know this. And considering we're in Act 2 at this point, this should be the moment where all of Gabby's feelings, her disappointment, her anger are laid bare, put on the table. But when Gabby opens her mouth to sing this song, all of her breath is wasted on criticizing Stein. It's all you statements. Where are the I statements, Gabby? Stop waxing nostalgic on how you used to cuddle in bed with Stein while reading the latest drafts of his novels out loud? Ugh! I can't think of a worse way to spend an evening. Disgusting! Get a life already! Rasputin, get a life! I know, I know, I know, I know. I know this is meant to be a light musical comedy, but I cannot stand the idea of a female lead having nothing to say for herself about herself. If all she can do is jab a man's chest and list all of the things he's done wrong without explaining what those actions have done to her, what you have written isn't a strong lead. It's an ineffectual nag out of the Looney Tunes. And no one wants to play a nag. At least Adelaide in Guys and Dolls, oh, here we are again, at least she had clear passions and goals and was able to articulate what she was losing as a result of staying with Nathan Detroit. When Adelaide has a more complex inner life than your female lead, let's say it together, you have a problem. (laughs) Huge, pretty woman. At one point in this song, Gabby is made to sing the line, I'd rather see you shoot yourself than watch you prostitute yourself. I'm sorry, let me get this straight. You, this heteronormative bullshit, you would rather Stein commit suicide overseeing overseeing him submit to the demands of his employer. That's completely psychotic. Why is Gabby so obsessed with the purity of her husband's writing? He's an employee, Gabby. He has been hired to write a movie for a major studio. That comes with very obvious strings. Stop focusing on the artistic integrity of others and get thee to a therapist, Gabby. Ugh, you need one. Funny 
How'd I fail to see this little bedtime tale was funny? I could cry to think of all the irony I've missed. What an unusual twist. Right at the end of it, funny. Who could see that this pathetic scene would be so funny? Once you strain to find the grain of humor underneath. Life double crosses with style Forcing you into a smile So it can kick you in the teeth Just desserts We can all laugh till it hurts At my expense I'm accustomed to working on spec I always pick up the check I think it's funny Who could top or make this comic opera more compelling? You could weave in some deceit to even up the score You'd have us all on the floor That would be roaringly funny Sad enough, my life's a joke that suffers in the telly talking about funny this big song for stein at the end of this show funny i i I cannot get over how his 11 o'clock number is inspired less by the realization that gabby has left him and more by his loss of control over a screenplay don't get me wrong i think stein is affected by his wife's exit but only in the way a child is affected when they don't get their way. When Stein sings funny, he's not mourning, he's whining. Wah, they made changes to my script. Wah, my wife yelled at me. Wah. And what does he learn from all of this? Nothing. The show's finale utilizes magic, real magic, to give him everything he could ever want, allowing him to literally rise above everyone he despises by putting him on the crown. Boo, boo, boo. I know I said I liked the crane image, but boo, boo, boo. That brings us to the end of our deconstruction of the score of City of Angels, and now we're going to hear from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Ha cha cha and whoopee. Hello. Hi, hi, hi. How you doing? How you doing? Ha ha ha. How you doing? It's me, Mama Rose from Gypsy. Hi, how you doing? How you doing? Uh, you know, I'm always on the move. That, you, you know what I'm saying? I'm always on the move. I got a couple of daughters. I got a couple of daughters. I got to get them in the show business. I was never able to be in show business, but, you know, these kids, these kids, they got promise, they got talent, they got they got oodles and oodles and scores of talent just oozing out of their brains and the mouths. Oh, the singing voices on these girls. Oh, these girls, girls, girls. Let me tell you, I'm a mother, and I got to keep these kids moving. Now, we, we live in non-traditional lifestyle, okay? We got a family, we got a family dynamic a setup that's very different from those of others, okay? We're, we're different, we're different. And I'm sure that you, you can relate, you can relate. Not everyone has a nuclear family that has a white picket fence and a little house with a dog. Ah, that's bullshit. We gotta keep moving. We're going all the way to the top, baby. The top, 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 top. 
and I'm a mother, so I also have to think to myself, you know, how do I keep these kids moving, but I don't want to burn them out. I don't want to burn them out, do I? No, 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 come on. Let me clean my throat. So, uh, you know, I'm a mother, okay? Okay, so I understand these things. You want to keep your kids alert, right? They got to learn their lines. They got to learn the music, the choreography for the stage. So you give them five, six, seven, eight coffee. Now, you might be, you might think to yourself, these are small children, Mama Rose. Come on, what are you doing, Mama, 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 what are you doing? Well, I'm going to say to you right now, there are vitamins in five, six, seven, eight. Don't ask me to name them. I don't have time, but there are vitamins in five, six, seven, eight coffee. And that is the key. Yeah, the caffeine in and of itself might cause them to crash and burn, but with the vitamins, now that's the real oomph. And don't even get me started. Do the kids like it? Don't even get me started. They love it. Say say that, say that you love it, kids. Say that you love it. Talk into the microphone. Talk into the fucking microphone. Talk into the fucking microphone. Get up to the fucking microphone. Oh, you don't want to do it? Fine. Alright, fine. You know what? You know what? You don't want to get up to the microphone? Alright. You're making your mama do the whole thing. Alright. Mama Rose here saying five, six, seven, eight. Count on it. You can count on it. I can count on it. And when you're good to mama, mama's good to you. You know what I'm saying? Now kids, get in the fucking truck. We got 7,500 cities to visit. Hi. Final thoughts on City of Angels. Did City of Angels win Best Musical because its story, characters, and score were genuinely compelling, or because it was a well-staged, well-honed piece of theatrical machinery? Because I gotta say, if your performer's technical abilities are not sharpened to perfection, the material they're trying to sell will be revealed as fairly forgettable pretty quickly. The songs almost never do more than hover an inch off the ground. We never spend enough time in any one reality for the stakes to have weight, and while all of the lead characters are basically duds, Stein proves to be truly unappealing. For my money, Merrily We Roll Along is a much better examination of a writer who sacrifices authenticity and burns personal bridges on the road to professional success. Merrily is also funnier as a dramedy than Angels is as an outright comedy, and its unconventional style of storytelling is much more than a Trust me, stick with my old buddy Stephen Sondheim on this one. Merrily is a meal that will leave you feeling full and satisfied, whereas Angels evaporates on the tongue and only leaves you wanting more. I'm back with... Wait a minute. (laughs) I'm back with the food metaphors. What is happening? What is going on? Are you hungry, Benny? I'm not kidding. I know we just ate, but I'm hungry. Let's get food after this. Benny's nodding. I'm nodding too. All I'm saying is, if you cannot secure across-the-board grade-A talent for a production of City of Angels, don't bother producing it, because you're only doing your audience a disservice. I know I said that earlier. I'm saying it a second time. Sue me. You know what tends to hold up, even when the cast isn't up to snuff? Guys and dolls! Oh, we're back with the comparisons. That show can weather almost any storm. So produce Guys and Dolls, Produce Merrily We Roll Along instead. Look, you have options is what I'm saying. Good options. Much better options. Well, you know, Guys and Dolls has a lot of the same gender issues as City of Angels. True. But Guys and Dolls premiered in 1950, not 1989. It's also effortlessly funny where Angels is labored and crass. Put another way, Guys and Dolls is hearty meat. Oh boy, here we go again. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with it. It's, it's hearty. It's meat and potatoes musical theater served without fuss. The recipe isn't perfect, but it's comforting 
filling. Angels tries to improve on that recipe by adding a pound of garnish and ham on the side, serving it to you with a cartwheel in a sweaty attempt at showmanship. I, I cannot, I went through with it. I'm talking about food again. Something's wrong. There is something in the air today. It's making me hungry. There's a germ in the air. I've got a hunger bug. I got the hunger bug is what I got. Anyway, stop trying so hard, City of Angels. You're sweating into my meat and potatoes. Where can we go? That is nearby. That serves meat and potatoes. Mm. Now, in 1990, of course, as we already established, City of Angels took home the best musical medallion, and the other nominees for the 1990 ceremony were Aspects of Love, Grand Hotel, and Meet Me in St. Louis, in St. Louis, by the fair. I have a strong feeling in me gut that says Grand Hotel should have won Best Musical in 1990, and me gut almost never leads me astray. Isn't that right, gut? Oh, I've given you more than a few shoutouts on this podcast, haven't I, little guy? Oh, I love you too, Gut. You want food, don't you? Don't you? Yeah. Let's rank the show. Okay, I'm going to put City of Angels at number 18 on our ranking right between Grind, which is at number 17, and Sugar at number 19. Now, again, if you go to our Twitter profile, at MusicalManPod, click the pinned tweet. You will go to a Google sheet where you can look at all the shows we've covered and you can see the complete ranking. Oh, and I went through it last week. So if you want to listen to that again, just listen to that. Now plug in City of Angels, okay? All right, okay. Uh, Let's see. Show-related ephemera. Oh, of course, yes. Show-related ephemera. Randy Graff. Okay, this is what I found. This isn't too, too crazy. It's not off the wall. It's, yeah, we've had better ephemera. But this is, this is a little intriguing, a little intriguing to me. Well, I found a clip of Randy Graff singing You Can Always Count On Me on an episode of Donahue. The old talk show, Donahue. This talented young woman played Fontaine in Les Mis and is knocking him out again in City of Angels, one of our most talked about musicals, now playing Broadway, Randy Graff to sing You Can Always Count on Me. This would appear, this episode would appear to highlight various Broadway musicals, as evidenced by the fact that the video starts with an awkward frozen image of a, of a cast member from a Grand Hotel, and this acts as the segment's lead-in. It's very awkward. The performance from Randy Graff comes and goes without any real incident, but I, I bring this to the table because the cameras, they keep cutting to close-ups of people in the audience watching Randy Graff. And to that I say, please don't. (laughs) No thanks. You know what people look like when they're watching someone perform? They look crazy. They look disturbed. They they look crazy and disturbed. We were not meant to watch people watch theater. It is not part of God's plan. It goes against God. It's disturbing cutaway. And I will also just say that there's a little bit of bias here in this episode. That's right, because when I was in college, I was on I was a member of a true a traveling troupe, a musical theater touring troupe, that's right. And we went to elementary, middle, high schools, we played at retirement communities, and we sang songs from the musical theater canon. And at a certain point, I was given the opportunity to sing alongside my friend Nick the song, You're Nothing Without Me. And we staged it all on our own. From what I recall, we, we set up this convention that there was this invisible boundary between us, and we kept slapping our hands against the boundary and trying, oh, we wanted to press 
on. Get on through to the other side. That's that's kind of like the gimmick that we had going on. And boy, was it sweaty. <laughs> I just remember my voice had not fully developed at that point, and I was always angry in college when people told me that. You know, you know, your uh, your voice isn't going to really fully develop until you're past your mid twenties, maybe even into your thirties. And that always made me very upset because I was in college to you know do the do the things that I was told I was not ready to do yet. That was very frustrating. But when it comes to the song You're Nothing Without Me, I was definitely not prepared. And I'm glad that we only did it a couple of times because I was blowing out my voice half the time and I had a real problem with breath control, sort of keeping it all in that lovable gut, that gut that I mentioned earlier. And it would cause blood to like rush to my head and my head would turn into a fucking raspberry. And it was discomforting. It was, it was, it was not, the audiences, the, the audience <laughs> close up during a performance of You're Nothing Without Me featuring John Pernasek, those faces wouldn't, would have been concerned. They would have been, they would have been wrinkled grimaces of concern, I do say. So we only did this song a couple of times before we called it a day. I especially couldn't hold that note at the end. I specifically remember, there's a very long final note at the end of You're Nothing Without Me. And at a certain point, our our musical director just sort of cut it short. He really did. He was like, I'm going to cut the wick. This candle is burning at both ends. Cut it. And that's my experience with City of Angels. That was my experience until this week. And I never had a chance to sit down with it in full, but now I have. And so it is time to determine which show we discuss next, huh? huh? So we'll need to take a ride on none other than the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show. Clobber me, you stupid bastard. Everyone ready? Then away we go. All right, we're going way back in time. We that we are. We're there right now. We just stepped off of the carousel. Look around, everybody. It's the year 1957. We're going way back to the early days of the Tony Award for Best Musical. This is a show that ran for 676 performances that season. Uh, it began. Well, it began and it's running that in that season, and then it, you know it went on over the course of a year or so, a couple of years. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Don't you dare look at me like that. <laughs> the name of the show is the most happy fella. Oh, he's a fella. He's happy. One might say he's the most happy fella. I have no idea what the hell that show's about. (laughs) I have no fucking frame of reference for the most happy fella, but I've got to, I've got to dip my toes in. I'm going to dive into the deep end after I dip my toes in. I sound like I'm going out of my mind. I'm so hungry. Can we please? I need something. (laughs) Benny, help me. Oh, patreon.com slash musical man pod. Go there to learn all about how you can support the show financially. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. You know what? We're going to forgo all that stuff. I've, I've been talking about my hunger for so long. Go to patreon.com slash musical man pod. Find out how you can support the show financially. But for now, I will just say verbal shout out time. Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, Marisol. Thank you so much. You get verbal shoutouts. Why do they get verbal shoutouts? Go to patreon.com slash musical and you'll find out, you goofs. All right. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts, why not go to Apple Podcasts, our page within it, and write a five-star 
star review. Write a real review. I want to see your words. Give me your words. Streaming, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. That's a streaming option. Streaming, you could also use Stitcher as an option. Stitcher, Podbean, streaming. Go to Twitter, follow us at musicalmanpod, and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Send me your questions, your takes, your opinions, your... Don't yell at me, though. (laughs) No yelling. I forbid it. I yell at you. I'm the captain now. Thank you to Benny, as always. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and to Zach Little for our beautiful music. And there's that doorbell. Aha, I thought... (laughs) Benny, you were not prepared. I'm going to give you a right bopping after this. Okay, so that was the doorbell. And you know what that means. Oh, that sound can only mean one thing. Just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. <laughs>